Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. We help sales leaders make how they lead their most defensible competitive advantage. It doesn't matter if you're a new manager, a first-time VP of sales, or a seasoned sales leadership executive. We're all facing new challenges, and if you want someone to talk shop with that sat in your chair, I've got you. If you want to become a legendary leader for the team you lead, hit me up and hit me up soon. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. I am so excited to have this week's guest join us. Jen Ferguson is tearing it up right now. She is the founder and growth strategist of Sales 911, and Jen's team helps solve pipeline and sales emergencies of all shapes and sizes. Sales 911 helps small to medium-sized organizations create predictable, scalable growth and get it faster than they often think is possible. Now, prior to founding Sales 911, Jen's had a long career as a salesperson, a sales leader, and a sales consultant in a number of organizations and industries. Her work has turned a ton of heads. She's won more than her share of awards, including recent accolades as a top 100 sales voice on LinkedIn, a sales hacker, top woman in sales, and many, many others. Seriously, you can see her work, things she's written, things she's talked about, things she's done almost everywhere you turn. Jen brings a really unique perspective on what it takes to achieve growth today. Not in the good old days, but today. And I've been working hard to get her on this show for a long, long time. I'm pumped to have her join us in what I know will be a fun conversation. Jen, welcome to our show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rob. I so appreciate it. I know this was a struggle to get scheduled, but I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy that you are here. I, uh, I know what we're going to talk about today is going to be good. we got listeners around the world that are going to be better off for having listened to you. And to get it started, can you just give us an introduction to your firm, Sales 911, and what you do for your customers? Sure. Yeah. I help with pipeline emergencies. So everything from writing your playbook and understanding the process, your sales process and how to optimize it for the buyer journey, Mm -hmm. as well as find those leaks in your pipeline and where we can really help you with that predictable revenue model. So how did that, let's back up even a step farther because that's a massive thing that you do. I, 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 I know that sales leaders around the world, you know, pipe is life, right? Your pipeline is your lifeline. I've heard it said like a thousand different ways. And so if you solve that, that uh, problem, that's a big problem. That's not a small problem that you're solving. H- how did you get started in sales? You know, look, maybe you could give a little more of your personal story because again, it's very few people that grew up wanting to be in sales. how did you get started in that? And how did that lead you to starting your own firm? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So back in, uh, I started actually in retail, so it was a, I was in oh. college when I had an opportunity to travel the country and manage a store in Florida and help them open new stores. So at, you know, 20 years old, here I am, a leader, 
going around the country, opening brand new stores. And then eventually I transitioned into a cigar bar. So I've had, I've had such a, a wide array of experiences, but I managed a cigar bar where I was, um, I had a bar, a private membership club, as well as a restaurant and some stores and had an opportunity to really see what it was like to build that, the B2B relationships, right? So in our cigar club, we, we sold corporate memberships. Cool. And so we would sell the corporate memberships and executives would come and hang out in the cigar club. And so that, that relationship building that I saw at a like high level was just so interesting to me. You know, we'd, we'd reserve out uh, our conference room and we'd have those uh, software people come in and do their demos and get their contracts signed. And I was like, this just seems so easy. You know, I can do that. That's so easy. So I eventually got into software sales because, you know, who wants to work nights and weekends and holidays yeah, and, with you. and like all the time. Yeah. And so in software sales, I had an opportunity to take a solution to market. So we had a legacy customer base, but with ProfitZoom, which was a brand new solution, I was the only salesperson. And so I had to get those first customers and get everyone like onboarded and, and grow that. And it was an amazing opportunity to really understand what it took to go to market mm. And get customers on a brand new product when it's unknown, nobody's on it, you know. Um, so that was just an amazing experience. And I really liked the the technology piece, you know, being able to make people's lives easier through technology just really, you know, spoke to me. The so, amount of time savings. No, keep and going. for small businesses, especially small to medium-sized businesses you know, it changes their lives, that ability to do everything in one system. And Mm. so really enjoyed that. Eventually, I took a marketing uh, role there uh, to get a new website launched. And, you know, it's my career evolved over time to eventually focusing on sales development and leading a team to grow the top of the funnel. Um, most of my consulting is actually on sales development and AE handoffs Oh, awesome! and really creating sales development within organizations, as well as understanding that pipeline analysis and mm-hmm. building that playbook. So cool. it's been an interesting journey for sure. Well, I, I got tons of things that I can't wait to talk to you about, particularly as we talk about winning in the modern day. So do you mostly work with tech companies then? As you, you're talking about AE, SDR handoffs and stuff like that. So is that mostly where you spend your time? Um, some uh, I industry specific, you know, teams. So sometimes that's software, sometimes that's electrical companies. It's, yeah. it's very, you know, it's very different. Um, okay. But basically, I help anyone who needs help. So I'll figure it, it out. <laughs> All right. Well, let's roll. Let's get into it. This is going to be fun. So I, I, I love how you position your company that, you, you know, Sales 911, you respond to pipeline or sales emergencies, right? You know, yeah. I, I, I vision calling like there's a fire in my house and I call and they say, 911, what's your emergency? And, and I can see you being the same thing. You know, Sales 911, what's your emergency, Right. And uh, it sets you up for a really interesting conversation right from the get-go. And so I, I'm interested to start with that. What 
causes a state of emergency for a sales team. Yeah, not enough pipeline is, of course, the first one, right? (laughs) Um, Pipe is life, and without any pipeline, you're going to have a problem. So how do you fill the pipe? Maybe you add sales development. Maybe you have a full sales cycle AE and need to um, get them to understand how to do outbound. Um, maybe it's looking at your pipeline and understanding, you know, what the average number of days is per stage when you win to understand what's falling through the cracks and whether that's a process problem or if it's a training problem and being able to pull those levers to improve results. I like the term levers that you just used. And so I, I've often felt like when I work with sales leaders that we want to help them feel like an engineer in a locomotive. You know, you're sitting there in the locomotive and the locomotive's pulling all these trains up the hill or around the bend or wherever it's going. And you got like a set of levers in front of you, right? And some might make you go faster. Some might make you have more pulling power. Some might make it so you can corner better. And there's a lot of different things these levers do. And I think that our ability as a sales leader often depends on A, understanding what all those levers are. And then, you know, how do you pull the different ones at different times to get results? And, and I love that analogy, but frankly, I think that's easier to talk about than it is to do. It's not as simple as what you just did. I mean, you know them, clearly you rattle off a bunch of them, but, but making those become levers that are used rather than things that are talked about is probably a big difference. True? False? Yeah, no, that's true. That's why um, typically I use data, right? So if I look at your pipeline and I understand, okay, over the six months, it's an average number of this many days per stage in the sales cycle. And comparing that with your current pipeline, here are all the outliers. And of these outliers, where are the patterns, right? And maybe it's a stakeholder that holds you up at that last in the negotiation stage. Maybe it's, you know, the handoff between SDR and AE. Maybe it's, you know, there's so many different variables but it's digging into the data to understand where, where those gaps are, where the leaks in the pipeline are, to know which levers to pull. Um, for instance, in one case, you know, they were not from SDR to AE, you know, that scheduling that next meeting, the discovery call, sometimes took some time because it was entirely based on the AE's schedule. Mm. instead of when the buyer wanted the demo. So in that particular case, they were losing to their competitor only because they weren't getting to demo fast enough. Oh, wow. That's such a great story. So if you're not getting to demo fast enough and, you know, you may be the quickest to call, right? Let's say your SDR got, got to them before anyone else. If you don't make it to the next stage as quickly as your SDR did, then you, you've got a gap. You know, that's really interesting. I, I, uh, I just have been spending some time diving into that 80, 20 principle, the, the Pareto principle that 20% of the people get 80% of the results. I know you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting. I was like diving into why does that happen? You know, why does that happen? Because our world of sales is super interesting, Jen, like, you don't have to be twice as good as someone to win. Sometimes in the mind of a customer, you know, option A and option B are razor close. It might be you only win by 1%, but 
But if you win by 1%, you don't get 1% more business. You get 100% more. It's a winner-take-all game, right? So you don't have to be twice as good to get twice as much business. If you can be 1% better and stay that way over time and make sure it's 1% better in the thing that will have the most catalyst effects, then all of a sudden you can be that 20% that controls 80% of the business. If you can just know what that 1% or 2% is, that yields those things. And so that's why I love what you're saying. Like, what a great, what a great insight that, you know, we were, this company of yours was basing the next stage on the availability of the AE rather than the availability of the buyer. What, I mean, it seems like an obvious one, but I mean, does, does the data kind of show kind of no dumb moments like that often to you? Or is it, is, is, I mean, what's that like? I'm interested to learn more because- you have to you have to dig dig for it. Um, close loss analysis helps a lot, right? Okay. So if you see that, okay, the a the SDR scheduled the meetings and it was they look like they're good quality meetings, right? They have they've they've hit all their criteria. It you know all of the notes are there. It's very detailed, and it you don't make it to the next stage you have to dig into why you didn't make it into the next stage. And that takes calls. And so it didn't make it into the pipeline far enough that it's really even close loss analysis at that point. It's just really understanding what happened there. Um, and then looking for patterns, right? So where do you find the patterns and is, are the patterns across the team or the patterns for just like one particular team member? If it's across the team, then it's pretty clear and you find out pretty quickly. If it's just a couple different people, then you've got a whole lot more work to do. But it's always easy to pull the levers that are consistent across the board, right? Because they're easier to find. So let's say um, let's say you have um, the SDR scheduled an appointment. You have an, a discovery call appointment and then a demo, right? Right, right. And what if? Your buyers don't like that process. Yeah, what if? Tell me. I'm, now I'm really interested in your answer to that. What if? They always want to get to demo faster, right? And if you're committed to having sales development and you want to have that, then what makes most sense is to have sales development do the discovery call so that the very next meeting is the demo. Right. And then also understand where people are at. If someone's looking to put in a solution like ASAP, they're ready then they shouldn't be waiting for an AE to be available. You have to, you have to, you know, understand that, okay, that means who cares whose territory it is. This is about the buyer and it goes to whoever is available. Um, So really just looking into all of the stages and optimizing it for the buyer as opposed for the company or the team or, you know, um, really about that buyer experience. I think one, one of the reasons why I bring this unique perspective to this is because of my background in retail. Like the first decade of my career I spent in retail and the idea of legendary customer service was drilled into me from like my very first SKO. And you wouldn't think retail has SKOs, but retail has SKOs. Cool. And so the idea that, you know, if you, you know, create a great experience, you're going to have continuous buyers, but if you create a bad experience, that word of mouth will travel. Well, 
I learned that in what, 1995 at SKO. So you take that and now put it at the speed of the internet and it's it's not about you it's about your buyer and if you're not going to meet them where they want to be then you're not going to earn their business so i'm really interested in this i could stay on this for a long time but there's so many other things i want to talk to you about that i've got to wrap this one a little bit okay um because you got so much to offer the show today but well, these pipeline emergencies, what do you see? What do you see the good leaders do differently than maybe the average leaders in avoiding those? Or what do you see people that have pipeline emergencies as you help them fix them? What kind of habits or processes or non-negotiables do you see them put in place that helps them avoid that state of emergency moving forward? Yeah, really digging into understanding what happens with um, the deals within the sales cycle. Okay. So, and not just the closed loss when it's all over, but there are multiple stages in understanding if something doesn't make it and there's a continuous pattern of it not making from discovery to demo, then understanding why that is from demo to proposal, like reviewing each stage and not, and, and digging into the why is really the important piece. And then finding those patterns because it's always going to be in the patterns if it's a process problem. If it's an individual problem, then you know that's addressed differently. But if it's a process problem or a training problem, let's say you're like, I, I've spent a good deal of my career doing accounting software, right? Okay. So at the end stage, the accounting software that I sold it was always one of the financial people who didn't want to make that change, right? So understanding that that stakeholder needed to be engaged early and often throughout the entire sales cycle was important because the reason people bought that software was because of the operation side, not the accounting side. So understanding your buyer, but understanding and digging into each step of your process, so I worked at a company for a, a, a while earlier in my career that really emphasized win-loss analysis. And I felt like there was a while that that was like seen and used a lot. But in recent times, I haven't seen as much emphasis on win-loss analysis. And I love, I didn't even plan on talking to you about this, Jen. Mm-hmm. I want to I dive into it for a second because that's what you're making me think of. For our sales leaders, would you recommend having structure and rigor around evaluating wins and losses for the purpose of doing that analysis of variance you're talking about? What's the win pattern look like versus the loss pattern? Is that something that should be part of every org if they want to avoid these emergencies in your mind? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But even taking it a level deeper in understanding why things aren't moving from one step step in the sales cycle to the next. Okay, And maybe this is a deeper sales operations. Not everyone has sales operations role. Right. But if, especially if you don't, then someone needs to be looking because across your sales team, if it's a a process issue and you can pull a lever, what will the results look like? You know, for instance, in one case, we added, um, the SDRs did discovery calls. We reduced the sales cycle by 50%. That's, wow. that's a significant change. That's a wow. That's better. Significance not given it enough, man. My eyebrows go up. You know, my tongue comes out. Like, wow, yeah. 50%. That's, that's a wow. And that's so, a, so that's a big deal. 
And yeah. so looking for all of those areas where you could pull a lever and suddenly the, the results. And we're not talking about, you know, necessarily bringing anything more in, but pulling a lever and working with what you have to achieve more. Um, you know, it's like that John Barrows always says, uh, be 1% better. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So if you could do this and this, will you be 5% better? And if you could do this, will you be five more percent better? And as I already said, if you can be 1% better than your competition in a winner take all scenario, winner take all creates disproportionate results. If you can be that one to 5% better. Right. Yeah. And so I like that. So yeah, I, I, I don't see as many people really doing win loss. And so that's why you had me pause on that, Jen. And, and um, I, I haven't heard as many people prioritizing that as, as I used to hear. And, and I really think that that's something that probably can create competitive advantages. And so I'm glad you brought it up. Is there like any one kind of thought you've already talked about digging the data, looking for levers, uh, any thoughts on like, who does that? Is that, is there a benefit of having a third party do it? That's not emotionally tied to it versus sales ops do it. I, I, I don't think that I think the right way to do it is to have the salesperson tell me why we won or lost. I think it really needs to be involved in, like you said, making calls and diving in any best practices on doing win loss from your mind before we move off of this topic. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm in favor of a third party coming and doing it, but, well, but, but I didn't know we were going to talk about this. So I want to make sure that everybody knows this, this is not me. Like this is a fair, yeah. legit question. So yeah. But the reason is, is the bias. Right. And because let's say you've got an SDR manager and a sales manager, everyone, each person is going to be pulling on each side, right? Or maybe you don't, maybe you have marketing and sales. Each side is going to be pushing or pulling and saying, it's your fault. It's your fault. And so the easiest way is to have, you know, even if it's not a third party, a neutral person, understand and look at it and take that deep dive into it so that you're looking at it with no blinders on right uh, past any bias past any you know uh favoritism you know all of the things that that come up additionally you know creating an, an inclusive culture right where aes sdrs everyone on your team can t- sometimes tell you where these problems are, mm. but they may not. And in cases like that, it's because they don't necessarily feel comfortable saying so. Um, so sometimes it's, you know, you can find out, but by simply asking your people and communicating at a deeper level, if you can change three things about our sales process, what would they be and why would you change them? And, and really listening with an open mind and open heart to what they're saying um, can also help. So let's talk about that. You've brought up sales playbooks twice on this call already. And you've also brought up the buyer emphasis rather than the seller emphasis on a couple of occasions. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I mean, I, I look at those as like similar things. You want to have a buyer emphasis and you want to create playbooks that helps that scale. Any best practices to how you institutionalize that in an organization? Um, I, I get people asking me questions about that all the time. And, and it's not just young or medium-sized companies. I, I can tell you there's some really mature companies uh, 
that are saying, man, what's the best way to do this playbook thing? Or, you know, especially in the shift that's happening right now, how do we remain buyer focused instead of be sales focused? Uh, any kind of best practices or things that you've learned helps organizations build playbooks that matter because they're focused on the buyer? Yeah. Um, first, understanding what it looks like right now, what it actually looks like, not what you think it looks like, right? So take, take the buyer's perception and walk through your sales cycle and understand what it really looks like. Um, maybe talk some, to someone in your buyer's process about what it looks like, what they would change about it. Talk to the last couple people who purchased. What did it look like? Talk to the last couple of people who didn't purchase early in the sales cycle and what it looked like. It's really understanding and doing that analysis of understanding what it looks like versus what you think it is. Because you may have a playbook and you may have this documented process. You may not. But if you do, just because you've written it down doesn't mean that's what's actually happening. Right. Operationalizing it is totally different than creating it. Exactly. So whether that's actually happening, what, what's actually, you know, being used and understanding what that looks like from a buyer's perspective, not from an organizational perspective, not from a sales leader perspective, not from an AE, but like put yourself in their shoes. It's almost like that higher level EQ of, okay, if I'm my buyer, what does, what are the steps and what are the roadblocks along the way? So you are dead on, Jen. And I can't tell you how many times I've had orgs ask me to look at their playbook or look at their process or whatever, the things you're talking about. And my first question always is, how did you get these steps or these experiences you want to create? How'd you get these? And again, here's my experiences. I'm just one person. My experience is most of the time, it's just this is what the best reps do, or this is what we found leads to success. And very rarely do I have someone say, this is because this is what the customers told us needs to happen in order to make this work. Um, Why do we wait so long to ask customers for that? Is it because I'm going to be quiet. You tell me, I mean, why do so few, I I think that it's like the secret advantage, Jen. Why do so few times do we actually talk to our customers and either get confirmation what we're doing is right or have them just tell us? Why is that? And that's a very good question. And I don't really know the answer. Okay. I think for many years, this B2B space has always been, you know, how, how much, how is it easiest for me? Okay. Very self-focused. Where you look to the B2C space, right? And it's Amazon. It's like, how easy can I make it for you to do mm, business with so me yeah, and so get good. it to, to, to your door? I can hit a button now and Amazon will deliver me some crap and and I can get it right away and right. I can get it just the way I want it and if I'm going on vacation I can move it and have them bring it next week it's like it's all in my hands to mm. how I want to buy it well can you imagine what a b2b company that was really customer centric customer focused would really look like like how do you want to buy Mr. Buyer, how, like, how quickly do you need it? It, it, It's funny. Like I talked to someone recently who um, 
has a training company, right? And they're selling a, an annual subscription, okay. right? And so the annual is kind of a higher amount. And so I proposed a, a smaller subscription, you know, a monthly, right? And when you think about how people want to buy, do they want to buy annually or do they want to buy monthly? Do they want to, you know, experience new things on a frequent level? I mean, how do people want to buy? Right. And so just really understanding that. Yeah, I, I think that you're so, it's, it's, I've heard it, what, Occam's razor, the simplest answer is often the best. And it seems so simple to say, just talk to your customers, talk to them. But I don't know why it doesn't happen that often, but it sure doesn't seem to happen that often what I've seen. And for you to keep bringing it up, it sounds like that's maybe something that you see missing a lot. Yeah. Um, any tips for our listeners on how they might do that quickly or easier than maybe they thought? Is there any best practices on how they might do that? Ask the question. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we're both laughing. They can't see us. We're, we're both laughing, but no, but, but it doesn't happen that often. True no, or false? No. <laughs> I mean, and not, don't just talk to, you know, the people who bought. Because what you under, need to understand, you have to talk to the people mm. who didn't buy. And I'm not saying who didn't buy in negotiation stage because they decided it was too expensive, right? Or whatever. You have to talk to people who didn't buy early to understand why, number one, they were interested and fell out of your sales cycle. I'd add one thing to that, Jen, that I've seen. I, I'm loving this. I'm burning up notes again. I mean, this is so great. You're, it's just, you're speaking my language. I think that not only do you not want to just do it at the end when they lose because of negotiation or maybe whatever. Because again, when I was looking at one loss, too easy, people say, oh, I, I, you, know, you were too expensive. Price is the easy answer, but I found it's almost never the real reason. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's almost never. So I think you want to look at losses, hopefully at every stage. When we lose in the very beginning, why do we lose? If you have six, six stages in your sales process, I want to know the number one reasons why we lose in one, two, three, four, five, and six. I want to know all of them. I don't want to just have blanket statements. Well, when we lose, this is why. When we win, it's why. No. Uh, there would be specific reasons why they would not advance at every one of those stages, right? Well, yeah, for the most part. I think usually, right, for the most part, it's a discovery thing, right? You win and lose in discovery. I agree. If you can get good and at that, it solves 90% of problems. If you lose after discovery, then it's usually a stakeholder problem. Mm. You don't have enough stakeholders or like you haven't engaged everyone on the buying committee and someone has now raised their hand and go, hell no, I'm not doing that. Um, because when you have a buying committee, everyone's pulling and everyone wants, you know, their space, right? This is mine. Don't mess with what's mine. But if you're collectively, you know, going to purchase something and you have a buying committee, you have to make sure that you understand the impact to all of the stakeholders. I really like that. So can I ask if I got this right? Because I think that's a really good nugget for everyone. If you mm -hmm. lose pre-discovery, it's about fit. If you lose post-discovery, it could be about stakeholders. Did I get that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are other small variables that I've seen, but it's not like 
to me, those are the two biggest things I see that discovery up to discovery, you know, but you have, I mean, discovery is discovery. You have to find all of the impact, all of the reasons why, why do you change the status quo? What is it, you know, if you make no changes, what, how, how does that impact your life? If you make a change, how will that impact you? You know, what that future state looks like and whether that really matters to them. How severe is the pain? I love it. All right, let's move off of this. Let's get to, we got like just a few more minutes. We got about eh, almost 15 minutes, Jen. And we got some really great topics that I really want to make sure we get some time on because they're, they're ones you're passionate about and they're, they're ones that you've seen be important. I, I want to talk about some of the recent work you've done on culture ad versus culture fit. And, um, and, and I love your insight on it. I, I love what it does for companies. And maybe most of all, I love that you are passionate about it. So can you talk about that for our listeners just a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it, I think that's a sales emergency too. Right. Uh, it's, it's a uh, sales 911 emergency Boom. Um, where you've got, you're looking at candidates for roles, right? And you're looking at them, whether they're a fit. And if they're a fit, they're someone who, you know, that Forbes tribal meaning of looks like you, talks like you, is exactly like you. Or is it someone who is a culture ad who's going to bring something unique to the table and bring that diversity of thought where they'll bring new ideas and bring more context to whatever it is you're trying to achieve as part of the team, right? And I'm not saying not make not making sure that the people you're hiring don't align with your values. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, what do they bring to the table? That's different. That makes them someone to be considered and not looking at them for, you know, what they're lacking, but what they bring to the table. Um, A lot of times people get stuck in this idea of culture fit that unless they fit in with the team, it's going to be disruption. But the people who are going to push the status quo, who are going to bring a little different perspective, have been pushing through adversity. And they're the ones who are going to be able to adapt to whatever's going to throw, life's going to throw at them, right? And so it's got to be someone who brings something unique to the table. That's, that's really insightful, first of all. But what I like about it is most of the time, the words I see, Jen, are culture fit. Are they a fit for our culture? And I don't, like you were the first one I ever heard use the term culture ad. And that's why it struck me so much. That's why I wrote it down when you were sharing that with me. I wanted to get into that. I I like the idea that as leaders, we are the architects of the culture we need to have, right? I mean, as the leaders, this is a sales leadership podcast, Our job is to be intentional about creating a culture. And if your culture is not growing and developing, then that's an emergency to use your your words. I liked it because you will get passed by, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if adaptability is the new competitive differentiator, John Barrow says that, right? And um, if they're the differentiator, then how is someone who is the same as everyone else going to help you differentiate yourself? Or is it going to be the person that you add that brings something new and unique to the table 
be your differentiator. Yeah, I think we're we're competing as organizations. We're competing on the responses we bring to whatever the events are, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's that adaptability you talk about because everybody faces the same events, the same crises, the same you know, what's going on. We're all facing similar ones. So what we're competing on is how we respond to that, how we anticipate that, how we, you know, what we do about that, uh, not because of that. And so I like that. I, 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 uh, I, th- I think that's really interesting. When you see companies hiring for culture ad versus culture fit, what are some of the things that you see happen to those companies? Well, you know, I'm, getting this message out there. I'm not seeing a lot of people embrace it. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm glad we're talking about it then. There, there are stats out there about how diversity impacts, you know, your profitability. Right. I actually, uh, I wrote an article just uh, this week about, you know, that shared some stats from Gong that, you know, like women in particular, there are some stats from Gong that says, they're 11% more likely to win and 8% more likely to uh, make quota. Mm. 8% more likely to have uh, deal stage acceleration. And so though, you know, and though women are different and during the pandemic, what everyone is reporting is how women are more impacted than men that they're being, you know, furloughed, laid off more frequently, faster, just, you know, and even as jobs come back right now, the stat is one in four early in the pandemic, they were only coming back to women one in 10. Wow. Improved. Now it's only one in four, but that's a significant shift, right? So there's a workplace study that's in my article, the article is uh, sassales.io. There's a workplace study that says that what is happening right now for women across the board in workplaces is going to affect the next half century. Whoa, say that again. That's, that's a big deal. I want to make sure that that doesn't fly over people's heads. Can we say that one one more time? What's going on with women in the workplace right now will impact the next half century that the gains that we had made earlier on before the pandemic, not only had we lost them, but that there is such a shift with how leaders look at people who are different than them. You know, CEOs, sales leaders, 79% male. And in times of crisis, there are reports that they go with the safe bet, the comfort, someone who is most like them. The thing is, if adaptability is your competitive differentiator, then are you shooting yourself in the foot by not considering people who bring something unique to the table? So I'm, I'm going to jump on your bandwagon for a sec, Jen. We've got five minutes and uh, we'll wrap this up because you got to the last thing that I wanted to talk about. I did want to address what's happening with the women in sales right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking I, like a I work with lots of sales leaders in lots of countries. And one of my very favorite ones, I'm going to name drop her. I hope that she doesn't get too angry at me. Her name is Nivia Claussen. And uh, she works at a, at a great company called Better Lesson. And uh, last year during a pandemic situation, when they sell to school districts, when school districts aren't 
you know, having to rethink how they are selling or how they're educating children. Uh, she was able to have her team nearly more than double the revenue per rep. I think revenue per rep is one of the most important metrics on sales leadership. Cause if I can see that I can drive more, more revenue per rep without adding more FTE, I'm having impact as a sales leader. She doubled it. And it's because she was so adaptive, Jen. And, yeah. and I was working with many others in, you know, maybe not the exact same market, but I saw people that adapted better, male or female, you're right. They did better. But one of my very favorite sales leaders is Nivea. And she, she went to adaptability first. She didn't say, let's see how this goes. She did the, exactly what you said. What do we do so we can be first? And she saw it as an opportunity to create new first mover advantage. And the numbers were off the charts to your point, what you said, what you said. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. That ability to adapt and you, you don't get that by having all the same people. That diversity of thought is what you need in order to be able to achieve that. Yeah. So. All right. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I love it. So we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about buyer process. We've talked about culture ad, culture fit. We've talked about women in sales. We've talked about what causes the state of emergency. We've rattled off. We've hit some good stuff. And like, I'm energized by talking to you. I, I, uh, I do have one question that I wrote down early on, and I want to give you a chance for any final thoughts before we do our rapid fire. Um, you made a statement because you talked about if companies are committed to the sales development. And it's actually, as you already know, that's become like people are questioning if that's the best model still right now. It started back in 2013, as you know, and it, you know, and it got really mainstream. And I have a lot of organizations questioning, is this still the best buyer experience to have someone like do all the prospecting? And as soon as they finally connect with someone, they say, now I'm going to hand you off to somebody else, right? Any thoughts on, on, on that? Because I have a lot of people ask me about that. Do you have an opinion I mean, on- I don't- I don't think it was ever the best buyer's experience. Right. I mean, the predictable revenue model wasn't meant for your buyer. It was meant <laughs> for you. Right. It's the, it's the finite mindset of short-term results versus the infinite mindset of long-term impact for your customer, their experience, and your position in your community and your world. It's, you know, it's, you know, the problem with some of the predictable revenue model things, right? If you're not focusing on your buyer, then it's all about you. So if we're teaching people to do discovery based on what your buyers want, then you need to be doing it from an internal process. How does your buyer want to buy? How do they want to be serviced? How do they want to experience you? It's not about you. That's a mic drop right there, Jen. Thank you. Um, that's a hot issue. I'm having more and more orgs ask me about it. So I was really interested to get your take. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners as it relates to the state of the selling and buying world right now? Things you're seeing or any final thoughts for our leaders? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love sales development. I consider myself the top, a top funnel list, right? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Right. And sure. so- I don't want people to like say, oh, Jen doesn't love sales development. I do. I think that you can have it and do it right by just focusing on your buyer. And that if you're entirely focused on your buyer, then you are, will never go wrong. That 
is the great way to end this conversation. Thank you. If you're focused on a buyer, you will not go wrong. Those are words to live by. Okay, Jen, we finish every episode with the same three questions. Uh, Rapid fire. You ready to rock and roll? Sure. Okay, number one, biggest sales leadership challenge, and how do you think we beat it? Yeah, holding people accountable. Tell me why why you choose that as the biggest challenge. I'm really interested in that. Because I help people write sales playbooks and recreate their processes. One of the best things about having a playbook is that it's crystal clear what the expectations are. So there's no need to like micromanage or or do anything like that because when all of the expectations are crystal clear, it's comforting to everyone. Mm. It's comforting to your AEs. It's comforting to the, the manager. Everybody knows what, metrics you need to hit Mm. what you're going to be measured on how you're going to be measured how you're going to be compensated all of that should live somewhere and a playbook is a a good place to have it now i'm not saying a playbook is like this static static thing that never changes i'm talking about like this a living playbook that evolves and changes over time based on what you're experiencing and how you're optimizing your buyer's process, buyer's experience. Love it. Okay. That's a great one. Thank you. I think, I think that will help a lot of people. Let's go to number two. You've helped organizations build out teams. You've helped organizations yourself uh, develop teams. When you're doing that, is there one kind of go-to interview topic or maybe even a question that you found to be really important as you're building teams? Yeah. Uh, what stresses you out? Now, that's the first time someone's ever given us that answer. We're actually working on an ebook with all these interview things right now. Tell mm-hmm. me why what stresses you out is so important to you. Yeah, because you under you start to understand where where their stress comes from, right? So I believe in the idea that when you're managing or coaching someone, that you're managing the whole person, right? Yes. And so it's not just like taking care of a symptom. But understanding all of the symptoms, the environment, and everything around them to understand how it is they are inspired, how they want to be coached, how they learn best, you know, where they want to be in their career, and knowing what their stressors are is is a key thing to know. So good. Jen, I love your insights. Some people, when they're stressed out, like work really well. I'm, I'm actually, if I'm up against the gun... I'm like crystal, like I'm, I'm really good. Yeah. Um, it's almost like that's when my best work almost happens. But if I'm not up against the gun, then I'll belabor it. And then it'll be like perfectionism is a problem. Right. Um, so understanding what stresses someone out is, is key. I love it. Okay. Last one. Leaders are readers. We found that the, the, the top leaders never stop their learning process. And reading is part of that. I don't care if it's a book you're turning pages in or an audible you're listening to, or even if it's more bite-sized chunks, you know, like maybe podcasts or blogs. Is there something that you would suggest to our listeners that they start either following or reading that might help their leadership career? Yeah. Um, well, I love uh, Never Split the Difference, but so I know so many people say that. So yep. let's but take that good. off the table. Okay. And I would say Rebel Talent. Oh, I don't know that one. If you want to read a book that's going to talk about the reason why you want a culture ad, read Rebel Talent, because it talks about those unique people who will push past the status quo 
who bring something unique to the table, and they're generally not necessarily the rule followers. They're the ones that are sort of push the envelope. Jen, you're amazing. How do they get more of you? We're going to have a lot of people that are going to be excited that I had you on the show. You'll probably have a few people that want to continue the conversation, might have questions. How do they connect with you? How do they learn more about Sales 911? How do they kind of pick up where we're leaving off? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm at Sales 911, uh, so I'm pretty easy to find. You can find me on uh, Twitter, jferg507. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Okay. Jen Ferguson, founder uh, and the chief strateg- growth strategist at Sales 911. They are helping solve sales emergencies, pipeline emergencies, emergencies of revenue types of all kinds everywhere. Check her out, look her up. And thank you again, Jen, so much for joining us. And as I say to everyone, happy selling. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? But first, this conversation is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. I am convinced that 2021 will be the year of the coach, the year where sales leaders create the biggest competitive advantage for the organizations they lead that they've ever had. So as you prepare for 2021, I want to help. Are your sales leaders ready for what 2021 will bring? Are you? If you want to take things up a level, hit me up. I'm putting together sales academies, kickoffs. Most importantly, I'm building new sales leadership and coaching processes, putting structure around the leadership motion, and providing one-on-one executive coaching to sales leaders in countries around the world. I'm having a blast doing it, and we are tearing it up. Now, I also want to tell you that I'm delivering a session at Salesforce's upcoming Dreamforce to You virtual event in a couple of weeks. My session is about how you can develop the DNA of elite sales leadership and how you can overcome the sales leadership crisis facing so many organizations today. It's a fast one. It's only about 25 minutes long, but this one is packed with tactics you can use to have more impact immediately in 2021. I'm excited to hear what you think about it after checking it out. Now, Jen is awesome. I knew she would be. It was hard to get her on the show. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation, and I can see why she's getting so many accolades right now. She and I cover a lot of ground in this one, but I really appreciated her emphasis on the buyer experience. So many people talk about optimizing the sales process, but what Jen really pointed out was the need to optimize around the buyer. Make it easy for the buyer to choose you, to work with you, to stay with you forever. And so often our process, our focus on the sales process doesn't really consider what the buyer is experiencing on the other side. A good example of this is why the sales development role is getting so much scrutiny right now. An SDR will work their guts out in what I think is the toughest part of the sale. They they look for the opportunities and they work and they follow up and they deal with rejection. And when someone says yes to them after all that relationship building, value providing and follow up, they immediately hand the opportunity over to someone else. The customer may not respond well to the second person. The customer may not even like the second person, but the customer is handed over and has to work with that person because the process says, this is what must happen in the name of process optimization. It's an interesting phenomenon, and it's a fairly hot topic in sales right now. But it's a great way to showcase what Jen's talking about. 
We should optimize around the buying experience, not the sales experience. All of this sales optimization has had much of the buyer experience and the buyer empathy get lost in the shuffle. And a great way to stand out right now is to let the buyer buy the way they want to buy. Jen also kept coming back to the concept of patterns. The idea that success leaves clues, that's a true concept. There are patterns that lead to wins and there are patterns that lead to losses. There are patterns that lead to shorter sales cycles and there are patterns that lead to longer sales cycles. I've found that teams and individuals create operating rhythms. It reminds me of when I was a boy learning the piano. I remember my mom coming to the piano and turning on that dreaded metronome. She'd set the tempo. I'd listen to go tick, 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 tick. And she would tell me the song had to follow that rhythm. Um, and when I got the rhythm right, it was funny how the song would just seem to make sense. And it all felt right. But nothing screws up a song more than the tempo being all over the place. And while I may have some bad memories about practicing with that stinking metronome, the lesson of the rhythm applies to everything we do as salespeople and sales leaders. Now, as a sales leader, establishing patterns that lead to predictable success is super important. It's super important in building a pipeline, in pursuing an opportunity, in developing skills, in creating relationships. Everything we do needs to have a pattern that leads to an outcome that we like. It should be something, this pattern, this rhythm, it should be so predictable and it should be so intuitive that you could almost start tapping your toes to it. Predictable success comes from a rhythm that you can count on. So here's the final story I think of as I think of rhythms. When my oldest son was four, he was diagnosed with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. It's a heart disease where you create accessory electrical pathways in your heart and it makes it so your heart has crazy irregularities, and doesn't have a normal heart rhythm. Uh, it makes it so the normal conduction system just doesn't work right. Sometimes it goes really fast, sometimes it goes really slow, and sometimes it got into a state of heart attack. Um, he had so many accessory pathways that his heart really never got into a rhythm, and he was at risk for sudden death. And, and it was such a serious condition. We had to take this young boy four or five-year-old boy, and he had to have two heart surgeries. It was super scary. The first one was seven hours. The second one was eight hours. I don't even like to talk about it. Fortunately, my son Baylor was able to pull through, and he's alive and well today. But the lack of a dependable pattern put him at risk for sudden death. And as a result, we had to do whatever we could to help him have a rhythm that was life-giving. And I'm going to suggest that you need to do the same thing as a sales leader. The right rhythm will give your sales organization life. So take the time to find those patterns that are life-giving. And also find the patterns that create irregularity and stay away from them. And if you orient to the buyer, you'll find those rhythms that create more wins and create more wins more often. So here's to finding your rhythm of success. Here's to understanding the pathways of winning and the pathways of losing and building guardrails to keep you on the right rhythm. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. I love your insight. I love your passion. And to each of you listeners, I suggest you go back and take good notes and take advantage of this instruction that she's given us on how to find those patterns and establish those rhythms. Jen, I appreciate you sharing your insights with every one of our listeners, and I hope we're all more intentional about finding those winning patterns. Thanks to each of you, our listeners. I appreciate our five-star reviews on iTunes. Please, if you think we deserve it, keep them coming. 
I appreciate you reaching out to me directly. Keep that coming too. I look forward to these interactions. I hope to hear from more of you this week. Please make this a week of identifying the winning rhythms and patterns in your organization. Train to them. Coach to them. Showcase them. The results will follow fast. Do this and you'll find yourself on the road to legendary results. So make this a week of a winning rhythm. And as I always say, don't worry. Just execute because we got you. Thank you so much for joining the Sales Leadership Podcast, the award-winning sales leadership podcast for those sales leaders looking to create legendary impact to those they lead. The greatest compliment you can give is to share this show and any of your favorite episodes with your fellow sales leaders, social media followers, or other communities you're part of. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by the Jepson Performance Group. If you want to discuss any of the topics discussed on the show, want to level up your leadership impact, discuss executive coaching services, or even include me at an upcoming event, hit me up at rob at jetpg.com. That's rob at jeppg.com. And to those of you working to become a legendary sales leader, I salute you and wish you much success on your journey. Whenever you need someone in your corner, you know where to find me.